please turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians 4, 13-18. You can find this on page 987 in the uh, Bibles in the chairs in front of you. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage each other with these words. Well, death is one of those realities that we just don't like to think about, do we? Uh, we don't really like to talk about death either. It's a little bit dark, too terrible, too depressing. There's a funny but revealing scene in the new Barbie movie. Yeah, I'm going to go there. Where Barbie throws herself a party and everyone's dancing and smiling and having a great time. And, so, and then somebody says, this is the best day ever. To which Barbie replies, this is the best day ever. And so is yesterday and so is tomorrow and every day from now until forever. And everyone cheers. But then all of a sudden, Barbie asks, do you guys ever think about dying? And you hear a record scratch, the music stops, the dancers freeze and everyone goes completely silent. And they look at her with shock and disgust. All you can hear is the sound of crickets Nobody talks about dying in Barbie land. And if we're honest, it's not that different in the real world. I mean, who wants to think about their own mortality? What kind of socially awkward person brings up the reality of death as a topic of conversation? Maybe this sermon introduction has already made you feel a little uncomfortable. The horror of death can be overwhelming. After all, death cuts us off from everyone that we love. It mocks everything that we achieve, accomplish, and accumulate. And there's nothing that we can do to stop it. So despite all of our advancements in, in science and technology and medicine, the human mortality rate is still at 100%. Death is an enemy that we're just powerless to defeat. And so death brings with it a sense of hopeless despair. And because death is so awful, we have had to find ways to deal with it. We've, we've had to develop coping mechanisms. So some of us live in denial. Like the citizens of Barbie land, we don't think about death. We avoid the topic. We distract ourselves with busyness and entertainment. We live as though death is something that happens, but it happens to other people. Some of us even try and overcome death by obsessing about our health and our fitness and our nutrition. 
In other words, we pretend as if death doesn't exist, at least when it comes to ourselves and those we love. Some of us use a different strategy. So we downplay death. We, we tell ourselves that really death is, is no big deal. We even try and put a positive spin on death. So in Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone, Professor Dumbledore remarks, after all, to the well-organized mind, death is but the next great adventure. We tell ourselves that death is just a natural part of life, the next chapter, the next great adventure. And uh, when faced with death, we offer flimsy sentiments, don't we? To make ourselves feel better. So we say groundless things like, well, at least they're in a better place. One of the ways we downplay death is by joking about it. So that's exactly what Oscar Wilde did on his deathbed. So with his last words, he demanded, either that wallpaper goes or I do. And the wallpaper stayed. Like many of us, Oscar Wilde was trying to downplay death because if we can laugh about it, then maybe we can convince ourselves that it's not that scary after all. Both responses, the denial of death and the downplaying of death, are coping mechanisms. But reality eventually hits home, doesn't it? We attend a co-worker's funeral. A loved one dies, we get a terminal illness. And the coping mechanisms all of a sudden don't seem as effective. In those times we struggle to deny death's reality. We can't downplay death's terror. And the only thing we're left with is despair, hopeless grief. In the haunting words of William Shakespeare, life's but a walking shadow, a poor player that struts and frets his hour upon the stage and then is heard no more. It's a tale told by an idiot, full of sound and fury, signifying nothing. You know, an honest look at death just leads us to despair. It plunges us into an abyss of hopeless grief. But what if there's another option? So what if we could look, honestly look death right in the eye and not be overcome with despair? What if we could face death, but do so with a sure and confident hope? Well, that brings us to our passage this morning. So if you're just joining us for our series in First Thessalonians, let me just catch you up to speed. So Paul is writing here to a church in a city called Thessalonica. And he started this church after passing through the city, preaching the gospel. However, his time with them was cut short because an angry mob chased Paul out of the city for preaching the gospel. And so as a result, the Thessalonian church didn't get to complete Paul's discipleship program. There were things about the Christian life, important things, that Paul hadn't been able to teach these new Christians yet. And so when it came to certain doctrines, certain beliefs of the faith, they were uninformed. We see that in verse 13 of our passage. Look at verse 13 again. Paul says, but we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep. Sleep is a common metaphor in the New Testament for death. For example, in Acts chapter 7, when Stephen is stoned for, to death for preaching the gospel, we read this. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, 
Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he'd said this, he fell asleep. Well, notice Jesus' words in John 11. After saying these things, he said to them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. We even remember the Apostle Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 15, which we read earlier in our service. Paul speaks about how after the resurrection, Jesus appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Paul uses this metaphor three times just in our passage today. It implies the temporary nature of death. It suggests that those who are asleep will one day wake up. And so Paul doesn't want the Thessalonians to be uninformed about believers who've died. And notice the reason he gives in verse 13, right at the end there. He says, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. Paul doesn't want them to hopelessly grieve in the face of death. It's likely that some of the Thessalonian Christians had unexpectedly died in Paul's absence. And this left the church in shock because they weren't, they weren't prepared for this. They thought Jesus was coming back. They were waiting for his return. They, they knew that he could come back at any moment. But then people started dying. I mean, you can imagine the sort of questions they must have had. What's happened to those who've died? What, what's, what's, what'll happen now to them? Are they gonna miss out on Jesus coming? Is Jesus still coming back? They were uninformed about what happens to believers who die. Their ignorance on this issue had caused them to hopelessly grieve. And so Paul wants to confront them. Sorry, he wants to comfort them rather and encourage them with some words. Now, there's nothing wrong with grieving, of course. Even Jesus wept at the tomb of Lazarus, which is interesting because Jesus knew he was about to raise Lazarus from the dead. Like in a matter of minutes, Jesus knew that he was gonna summon Lazarus out of the tomb. Yet Jesus still grieved. And so what does that teach us? Well, Jesus was the perfect human. And so his tears show us that grief is natural. This is how healthy people respond to death. Of course, grief might look different from person to person, but a healthy human is not a stoic in the face of death. Yet, Jesus' grief did not crush him. He didn't sink into a hopeless abyss. Why? Because he had hope that Lazarus would wake up. And Paul thinks that Christians should grieve differently than the world. We should not grieve as others do who have no hope. We need not despair about death. We don't need to deny or downplay death. Because when a believer faces death, we should grieve, yes, but we should do so with hope. But what is this hope exactly, and, and how confident can we be in this hope? We'll look down at verse 14. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who've fallen asleep. The word for there, right at the beginning of verse 14, shows us that verse 14 is the reason for verse 13. So why all believers not hopelessly grieve? Well, because we believe Jesus died and rose again. 
Jesus died on the cross for our sin. The wages of sin is death. Jesus died taking the punishment that our sins deserve. He then rose from the grave in victory over death. He conquered death. He put death to death. Notice that the Christian hope is not about wishing upon a star. It's not based on some philosophical pipe dream. No, it's rooted in a historical event. We have a savior who really did die and who really did rise from the dead. I'm sure many of you have seen the classic movie, The Princess Bride. Some of you probably seen it a little bit too much, but in the story, the hero Wesley, he gets tortured to death, or so we think. And so his friends take him to see a man called, can anyone remember the name? Miracle Max, yeah, Miracle Max. And so after inspecting Wesley's body, Max reassures them, well, It just so happens that your friend here is only mostly dead. There's a big difference between mostly dead and all dead. Mostly dead is slightly alive. Well, Jesus wasn't mostly dead. He was all dead. He was flogged, crucified, speared through the heart. He was wrapped in linen cloths. He was was buried in a tomb for three days, a tomb surrounded by Roman soldiers. Jesus died, but the grave could not hold him. The tomb couldn't contain him. He rose again, and now he's alive, not slightly alive, but fully alive, resurrected, glorious. Jesus is living proof that death has been defeated. But how does this apply to us? Well, look how Paul makes the connection in verse 14 there. He he says, for since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, and then he makes the connection, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who've fallen asleep. The death and resurrection of Jesus is the pattern and foundation of our destiny. Just as he died and rose again, so will we. United to Jesus by faith, his resurrection becomes the guarantee of our future resurrection. Paul makes the same point in 1 Corinthians 15, which we read earlier on in our service. Just notice these verses again. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who've fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. Twice in that passage there, Paul refers to Jesus as the first fruits. Did you see that? First fruits was an agricultural term. In the Old Testament, first fruits referred to the sacrifices that were brought each year at the very beginning of the spring harvest. They were like the initial portion that served as a kind of guarantee for the full harvest. So if those first fruits were plentiful and good, well, that was a good sign for the rest of the harvest. But if those first fruits were, were, were bad, if they were lacking, Well, that was an ominous sign for the rest of the year. There was an organic unity between the first fruits and the harvest. In the first fruits, it was as if the whole harvest 
became visible. And so Paul is saying that Christ's resurrection is the first fruits of the resurrection harvests. First fruits imply later fruits. In other words, Christ's resurrection and the resurrection of believers, they can't be separated. They form an unbreakable unity. We might even say that the resurrection of Jesus and the resurrection of believers are really two episodes of one and the same event. Together they form the beginning and same, the beginning and end of the same harvest. In other words, there's a solidarity between Jesus and his people. Our resurrection is guaranteed. Why? Well, because the resurrection harvest has already begun. We already have the first fruits of our hope. Jesus is risen. That's why Paul says to the Thessalonians in verse 14, for since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who've fallen asleep. Our future resurrection is inevitable because of our union with the resurrected Jesus. Paul goes into more detail about this in the following verses. He says in verse 15, For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who've fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. So we will always be with the Lord. Paul declares this as a word from the Lord. We're not quite sure when Jesus said these things. We don't find any record of this exact teaching in the gospel accounts. Jesus did teach his disciples things that weren't included in the gospel accounts, so it's possible that this is one of those things. Maybe the disciples passed down this teaching orally to Paul but never actually wrote it down. Or maybe Paul received this revelation directly from Jesus himself. Whatever the case, the point is that this isn't Paul's opinion. This is actually a word from the Lord. And Paul makes it clear that those who are still alive when Jesus comes will not precede those who've fallen asleep. In other words, it's not like those who are still alive will get to meet Jesus first while people are still stuck in the grave. No, the dead are not going to miss out on Christ's second coming. Here's what's going to happen, verse 16. The Lord, Jesus himself, he will descend from heaven. His coming will be announced by three noises. There'll be a cry of command. It's not clear whether this cry of command is ushered by God or whether it's ushered by uh, an archangel. Paul does mention the voice of an archangel, but this seems to be a separate thing. He also mentions the trumpet of God there. In the Old Testament, the trumpet of, trumpet of God would announce the day of the Lord, the day when God gathers his people and brings salvation. The point is that Christ's coming will be a very public event. Every eye will see him. Every ear will hear him. His return will be like that of a mighty king. In fact, the Greek word that Paul uses there is parousia. This word had a double meaning in Paul's day. 
On the one hand, it referred to the coming of a hidden divinity, a God who makes his appearance known by a revelation of his power. But on the other hand, this term parousia, it became the official term for the visit of a high-ranking person, like a king or an emperor. And so Paul seems to have combined these two ideas. The coming of Jesus was the parousia of the divine king. He won't come quietly and secretly. He'll come with great pomp and splendor and glory. And when he comes, Paul says, the dead in Christ will rise first. It's as if these noises are divine alarm clocks. Those who've fallen asleep will wake up. It's worth saying here, I think, that we shouldn't push this metaphor of falling asleep too far. Elsewhere, the Bible makes it clear that when Christians die, our souls go to be with Jesus. So when Paul uses this metaphor of sleep, he's referring to the body, but not the soul. When a believer dies, their body is asleep, it's in the grave, but their soul experiences conscious fellowship with Jesus. But at the parousia, at the coming of Jesus, the soul will be reunited with the body and the dead in Christ will rise. But notice, we mustn't miss who it is that rises from the dead. It's not every deceased person. It's only those who die in Christ. That is only those who trust in Jesus for the forgiveness of their sins. Only those who, as Paul mentioned in verse 14, believe that Jesus died and rose again. That's why the hope Paul is talking about is not a universal hope. It's not a hope that every person has without qualification. It's a hope for those in Christ. Outside of Christ, there is no hope. Outside of Christ, death should lead us to despair. It should lead us to hopeless grief. So, you know, if you're here this morning and you are not a Christian, let me ask you, have, have you ever faced the reality of your own death? Or have you developed coping mechanisms because such thoughts just drive you to despair? Do you live in denial about death? Do you just try not to think about it? To, to avoid the topic? To distract yourself with, with busyness and entertainment? Is your best hope just to avoid death as long as humanly possible? To, to live as long as you can? Or have you downplayed this reality? Do you tell yourself that death is really no big deal? It's just the circle of life, the, the next great adventure. Do you tell yourself that you'll go to a better place, even though deep down, you're not actually so sure such a place exists? And even if it did, whether you've been good enough to merit a place there? Friend, outside of Christ, there is no hope in the face of death. There's just despair and hopeless grief. However, I've got good news for you this morning. You can face death with hope, a sure and steady hope, a hope that is guaranteed by the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. You, you can't earn this hope. You can't contribute to this hope. You simply have to receive this hope by faith, to trust in Christ, to put your hope in Jesus, to believe that he died and he rose again to save you. If you've got any questions about that, then let, will you please come and speak to me after the service or speak to anyone you've seen up at the front, speak to the person that invited you. We'd love nothing more than to help you grasp 
this good news. But, but Paul's not finished. Look at verse 17, because he continues there he, by saying, then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. He, he describes a great family reunion. Those who are alive when Jesus comes will be caught up together with their resurrected believers, with, with their resurrected brothers and sisters. You, you know, when we, when we lose a loved one, whether it's a friend or a family member, it, it's, just, it's incredibly painful, isn't it? Because we, we wonder, will I ever see them again? Will I ever hug them again? Will I ever, will I ever talk to them again? Will I, ever, will I ever hear their laugh? But for those, well, for those who are in Christ, for those who've died in Christ, the answer is a resounding yes. When Jesus comes, we will be reunited with those loved ones and they'll no longer be sick or weak or tired or suffering. They'll be fully alive, resurrected, glorious. You know, as I've been meditating on this great passage this week, the other day I, I was talking with my wife Heidi and I just said to her, look, not, not to be morbid, but like if I die before you, can you read this passage to our children? And just, just tell them like, daddy can't wait to see you again. Keep believing in the death and resurrection of Jesus. And I said like, and I'm gonna if you die before me, I'm gonna read this to them as well. Like, I'm so grateful that there's a passage like this in the Bible that we can read to people who are grieving. This is why we ought not to grieve as those who have no hope. This is way better than just saying to someone, I'm sure they're in a better place. Because this is grounded in, in a historical event that happened. This is a sure and steady hope. But here's the thing. That's not even the best part. Like the reason we'll be caught up together in the clouds is to meet the Lord. Throughout the Bible, clouds signify God's presence. So think of just even some of the major events in the Bible, like the Exodus, at Mount Sinai, the filling of the tabernacle or the temple, the transfiguration, the ascension. All of those events have a cloud signifying God's presence. In Daniel chapter seven, we read of the Messiah who will come on the clouds to establish his eternal kingdom. Christians have sometimes interpreted verse 17 differently. Some understand it to mean that Jesus will take or rapture believers from the earth to live with him. In the meantime, unbelievers will be left on earth to suffer a period of tribulation. In this interpretation, verses 16 to 17 aren't referring to the second coming of Jesus. That'll happen sometime later. Without getting into all the nuances of that argument, I'm not sure that's the best reading of this passage. After all, throughout the letter, the second coming of Jesus has been a major theme. Paul even mentions it in verse 15 of our passage. So it'd be a little strange if verses 16 to 17 were, were about Jesus kind of coming, but only kind of halfway. Also, when Paul talks there in verse 17 about meeting the Lord, he uses an interesting Greek word. It's only used twice in the New Testament. On both occasions, it refers to the action of going forth to meet an honored person and then returning promptly with that person. 
There's also many instances in the Greek translation of the Old Testament that have this pattern. In fact, even in secular Greek writings, this word was used to signify going out to welcome a dignitary before returning in celebration to the city. In other words, it seems as though Paul expects us to meet the Lord in the air and then promptly return with him as he judges the world and establishes his kingdom on earth. But whatever interpretation you take, the most important detail is actually found at the end of verse 17, where Paul says, and so we will always be with the Lord. That's actually the climax of Paul's argument. This is the hope of God's people. And, and this is really easy to gloss over, but we mustn't miss it. We mustn't miss it. Being resurrected from the dead is not the capstone of our hope. Yes, living forever sounds great. Having a resurrection body that doesn't like wake up in the morning somehow injured, you know, or getting an annoying headache or constantly feeling exhausted. I mean, that's, that's going to be brilliant. Like dwelling in a world without sin and suffering, that'll be marvelous. Being reunited with fellow believers will be wonderful, but that's not the peak of the mountain. The hope of the Christian is this, we will always be with the Lord. The dwelling place of God will be with his people. We will see him face to face. Christ will be ours forevermore. We'll see the hands that were nailed for our sins. We'll see the, the side that was pierced for our iniquities. We'll be in the presence of love incarnate. There'll be no better sight than seeing his face. There'll be no better sound than hearing his voice. He is infinitely wise and faithful and loving and merciful and mighty and gracious and true and beautiful. And we will always be with him. We'll delight in him as he delights in us. We'll, we'll swim in the ocean of his goodness. We'll reign with him forever. This has always been the goal of redemption. Fellowship with Jesus, communion with Christ, friendship with God. Someone should write a book on that. That's why this hope is actually not attractive for everyone. Not everyone wants to be with the Lord. Sure, we, we wouldn't mind a resurrection body. A glorified earth sound, doesn't sound bad either. Being reunited with loved ones would be nice. Well, mostly nice. But, but knowing God, being with Jesus, living in his kingdom, that's not everyone's cup of tea. And, and maybe that would describe you this morning. You know, you'd like a hope in the face of death but you're not sure about this idea of always being with the Lord. After all, you don't have a relationship with Jesus. And look, I get it. Like if you came to me and said like, hey, so there's, a, there's this guy you don't know. You don't love him and you're not sure that he loves you, but you're gonna spend eternity together. I wouldn't be like, awesome, that sounds amazing. You know, that would sound kind of weird and terrible to me. And maybe that's how you feel this morning. But I think that's why we need to go back to verse 14 because the Christian hope is grounded in the death and resurrection of Jesus. So if you've never seen yourself as a sinner in need of a savior, if you've never grasped the love of Christ displayed on the cross, if you've never recognized how hopeless you are without Jesus rising from the grave, 
then of course, verse 17 does not sound like good news to you. But here's the thing, once the gospel transforms your heart, once the cross convinces you that Jesus loves you so much that he gave his life to save you from your sins, once the resurrection amazes you with Jesus' power and his glory, once you start to trust and love and delight in Jesus and build a relationship with him and experience communion and friendship with him now, well, then you'll start to see why verse 17 is such good news. Put another way, once we have eyes to see Jesus by faith, we'll want to see him by sight. That's why the death and resurrection is really at the center of the Christian message. It's the thing that we preach every Sunday. It's the most common theme in our hymns and in our prayers. It's the heart of baptism and the Lord's Supper because this is the, this is the, the, the ground of our hope. And the more we rest, and meditate in the death and resurrection of Jesus, the more we'll want to be with him forever. Notice how Paul concludes in verse 18. He says, therefore, encourage one another with these words. This is how we're meant to apply this passage. You know, Paul hasn't written this to help us fill in our end times charts. He doesn't want us to leave here and engage in speculative prophecy about when Jesus returns and what that's going to look like. He doesn't want us to argue about details about Christ's return. He's not, he's not giving us material for best-selling apocalyptic novels. Because ironically, those things tend to discourage people and stoke people's fears. He wants us to encourage one another. He's given us a text for the funeral home, the hospital bed, the graveside. He wants us to comfort one another in our times of greatest sorrow. When a brother gets a terminal diagnosis or a sister has to pick out a coffin or a family gets a dreaded phone call, Paul wants us to encourage them with these words. And again, notice the corporate application here. He doesn't say encourage yourselves with these words. No, encourage one another. Because grief can be overwhelming, suffocating, depressing. In those times, we actually need one another to speak God's truth into our lives. We need, we need people to carry us to the cross. We need people to lift up our chins and help us to gaze at the resurrection. We need people to point us to Christ's return. There are lots of different ways we can encourage one another in these truths. We can do it through text messages or cards, through counseling and conversations, through prayer, simply reading the Bible to one another. I think we also do it corporately. When we gather together every Sunday, as we read scripture and pray and sing and preach, what are we doing? We're proclaiming the death and resurrection of Christ. And together we're setting our hope on his return and I think that brings us perfectly to the Lord's Supper because as we eat the bread and drink the cup, what are we doing? We're remembering the death of Jesus for our sins and then we're also proclaiming his death until he returns. On that day, we will rise to meet the Lord and sin and death will be destroyed and we will feast in endless joy as Christ is ours forevermore. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. Thank you for the good news that he died and rose again for our salvation. 
We look forward to that day when he comes and those in Christ will be resurrected and we'll be with him forever. Help us to encourage one another with these words. In Jesus' name, amen.